The title of my message this morning is uh, three words, Jesus Don't Play. Uh, the cover slide here has the image of a fictional character, John Wick, who's a character in an action thriller series uh, that kicks off with John Wick. He's a retired assassin who's, uh, you know, he's walked away from the game. He's not trying to kill anybody anymore. He's trying to start a new life. And, uh, and a new life that he's trying to start with just him and, and his dog, right? And uh, so, the, the, you know, the first flick starts with a, a group of Russian gangsters who uh, try to steal his car. They like his car. And then they kill his puppy. And that sets off a, a series of a killing spree uh, of assassin paybacks that goes on, I think it's a trilogy, right? And so it's just, you know, it, but it all starts with a guy who's just with his dog. And these guys come and they kill his dog. And it's payback time. Uh, for those of you who aren't dog owners, you, you might not just appreciate the bond that uh, a guy can have with his dog. I, I love my dogs. Uh, rest in peace, Sheba. Actually, I got two Shebas. Rest in peace. I love my dogs. Feel a bond with the dogs. And, you know, someone did something to one of my dogs, it would set me off. Further, with regard to John Wick, um, in, in the movie at least, uh, his, his wife was dead. And the only thing that he had to remind himself of her was this dog because apparently she gave him the dog or whatever before he died. So, uh, you know, it was more than the dog. You know, it was, it, it was his dead wife. So you, you watch this movie and you see these bad guys come, you know, beat up Wick and then kill his dog. And intuitively, uh, John Wick or any movie for that matter that starts with a bad guy coming in and like killing someone or raping someone or destroying a planet or whatever, like action movies begin, you intuitively, something in you rises up and you're like, get that guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's what every action movie is. There is a bad guy and he like does something heinous. And then the rest of the movie is you rooting, get that guy. And then at the end, they get the guy and you're like, yeah, that's what you get. Because John Wick don't play. <laughs> you know, like you don't mess around. That's what you get. Now, spiritually speaking, our intuitions go out the window, though, when we think about ourselves and our standing before God. Uh, we, we don't think that Jesus don't play because we think that we're all right with Jesus. Uh, most people in the culture identify as spiritual and they think that everything is fine. They think, you know, God's good with them or whatever. And so everything's fine because they're spiritual and, you know, their good outweighs their bad or whatever. And so, so they're fine with God. But what they don't realize is that Jesus don't play, that God don't play. And they're actually on the other side of things, that as the movie has opened... Uh, humanity has rebelled against God and, uh, and has done something far more heinous than, than killing a dog. Uh, in the storyline of the Bible, of course, they, they killed the eternal Son of God in the flesh. You have more than a, than, a, than a puppy dog's blood on your hands. You have the Son of God's flesh, His blood on your hands. In our public reading of Scripture this morning, we, we began with uh, a reading from the uh, Hebrew Bible, and then we moved into the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter preached with the pouring out of the Spirit and the sending of Jesus, and he said in Acts 2, 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed among you in your midst. You yourselves know, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, you put him to death. His blood is on your hands. All of humanity, all of humanity have rebelled against God, all of humanity have gone their own way. There's not a person in this room who has lived a completely innocent life. We have all broken the law of God, and when you break the law, you come under the wrath of the law. 
So appeals to instances where you have done good things according to the law is neither here nor there, because that's not how the law works. The law does not reward you for doing what you ought to do. Any more than, and I often give the illustration, if I were speeding on my way to church this morning, um, maybe I did, yeah, I did, uh, and, you know, the, the LAPD pulled me over or whatever, and they're like, you know, hey, what are, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm on my way to church, and that's a good thing to do, so that outweighs my speeding. And he says, well, no, actually, it doesn't work that way. You've broken the law. And I say, but, 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 officer, think of all the times that I have driven below the speed limit. You know, my goodness far outweighs my badness. Or to use another illustration, say I kill a person, and then I stand before the court, and I say, your honor, think of all the people I haven't killed. Right? My goodness outweighs my badness. Uh, think of all the people I've loved and all the people I've uh, walked across the street, the senior citizens I've helped across the street, uh, the orphans I've welcomed, the widows I've fed, and the rest. You know, my goodness far outweighs my badness. Uh, you, you know, if the judge were to say, you know, that's a good point. I'm a spiritual guy, you know. Uh, yeah, I, that, that's a good case, you know. All right, you know, have, have fun. You know, you'd say, we are going to get that judge debarred because that's not how justice works. Uh, it's, it's, it might be a curious way to begin the sermon, but hopefully you'll see as we get into things that Jesus isn't messing around in his ministry. And God isn't messing around in the message of the gospel that reveals to us that, that we have blood on our hands, and far worse than an earthly assassin that's coming for us to offer a payback for our rebellion, we have God, and we have God's judgment of us. Now, that's the bad news, and the good news is that Christ has come to take that judgment upon himself. That's the, that's the whole reason why we got that big old cross on the wall behind me, because he takes the wrath for his people. And in his earthly ministry, he, he comes to teach people about that reality uh, of this good news that has come in light of the bad news, in light of the rebellion, and, and, and with this good news, he also offers another way of life. He offers to wash the blood off of our hands and to give us a way of life following after him. Speaking of that way of life, would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and find your way to the eighth chapter in the Gospel of Matthew? We're studying this ancient document, the Gospel of Matthew, that is written from one of the members of the eyewitness community of Jesus who was there, who saw him, who not better to learn from than the people who were there. Uh, you know, people say, oh, you can't know who Jesus is. I beg to differ. Um, we have the accounts of people who knew him personally and were there. Oh, well, you just pick Matthew. What about the other Gospels? You know, I saw Da Vinci Code. I know there are other Gospels. Uh, I, I watched something on YouTube. You know, there's other Gospels. Uh, what about those? You know, and, and, and for sake of time, we can't get into them. But those Gospels, uh, namely the Nag Hammadi Library, they come hundreds of years after Jesus. Matthew is written in the first century uh, as well, Mark and Luke and John. So we have accounts that we could go to to say, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? What does he demand? Does he play? Does he not play? What kind of a guy is he? Now, more than a mere guy, Jesus of Nazareth is revealed in the Gospel accounts from the first century as God the Son in the flesh, born of a virgin, who has come on a mission to save sinners through his righteous life and bloody death. We have the wrath of a divine John Wick coming for us for what we have done with his dog, the creation, and, and, and Jesus comes to rescue us from that. The Gospel of Matthew is, is all about Jesus, his revelation, his rejection, his resurrection, his promise of a future return, and we see Jesus revealed in this account as the Messiah of Israel, the rejected one, the savior of the nations, the resurrected redeemer, 
and the king who will come in the future in the last days to rule and reign and renew the creation. And while we are waiting for that day, we gather on Sundays, the day in which he was resurrected, to listen to him speak to us as his people. We say, Christ, speak to us through your word. This book is more than a historical account from the first century. This book is alive, and and through it we can hear Christ speaking to us, us, his church, us, the embassy, the outpost of the kingdom that is to come, where his will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are his people. We are his body. We begin with the first point on your outline, Jesus and membership in the body. As we get into today's lesson, I need to give you some theological context. So you've opened to Matthew 8, but before we start reading Matthew 8, I want to give you some theological context for who Jesus is and how he's calling people and what have you. And then I'll give you some like historical, cultural, social context so that we can make sense of the verses that we're reading. Context is king, by the way. Uh, if you're listening to someone teaching the Bible and they jump right in without giving you context, uh, you know, your spidey sense should start tingling. You need to have context to understand the verses. So we're jumping into Matthew 8, and it is full of rich themes of salvation and discipleship, which go hand in hand, uh, uh, being saved by God and learning how to be discipled, like how to walk after him. Those who are saved by Jesus, we see in the Gospel of Matthew, become his disciples. Matthew's Gospel is quite concerned in these chapters that are just before chapter 8 to communicate what discipleship is. After all, uh, that was a given. People knew what discipleship was. Discipleship it was just an apprenticeship. It was following after someone, learning from them, and becoming like them. And Matthew is talking here in the text of, uh, about this discipleship process, this, this discipleship journey. He's talking about the who of discipleship and salvation. Who can come? Who will come? Who will follow? That leads me to the first subpoint under Jesus and membership in the body. Who can come to Jesus? And asking who can come to Jesus, I'm, I'm trying to give you a theological context for understanding the passage today. And we start here with who can come to Jesus, and this is a question of the sufficiency of Christ. To say that something is, to, is sufficient is to say that it is enough. Uh, if, if I provide a sufficient meal for, for my children, and there's seven of them, there's a lot of them, I, that, that is to say that there's enough food on the table for everyone to eat to have seconds, to have thirds, to go crazy because what I've prepared is sufficient. Now, in this case, Jesus is more than enough. Understand that the God of heaven, the real and true God, the real and true God who is at work in Christ, powerfully at work, this this God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons in one God. And this one God is madly in love with rescuing a people for himself. Uh, This God has created humanity in his image. He's poured his love out on on humanity, but humanity rebelled against him, as I began the sermon with. And so humanity as a whole is in an intense war with God and running from God. And tragically, this war is something that many do not see because they are blinded by sin. So while they, they think they are being spiritual and good and tolerant and, and loving, they are actually rebelling against God. But God is gracious and, and steady in his mercies, And so the Father sent the Son to become a man, and as a man, he was brutally murdered at the hands of men. That's what we saw in Acts 2. This was not a surprise, though. God wasn't caught off guard here. For through this murder, the Father would actually offer forgiveness and life to rebels. The Son wasn't murdered for good, mind you. He rose from the dead, conquering death itself and our rebellion. His death was a substitute for rebels. He died in their place He died in my place, 
He died in your place, for those of you who are in, in him, to pay for sin. And what an incredible payment. The payment is endless. It has no ending. It's sufficient. It's, a, it's enough. You could keep going back for, for seconds and for thirds and for fourths. It, it's not going to run out his payment. It's never going to run, run empty. Uh, you, you, you don't have to look at the account and see if there's anything in there. There's always something in there. And because of this, we describe it as being sufficient. Jesus is more than enough. Who can come to him? Oh, there's a feast that has been prepared and there's enough on the table. You can invite anybody to come because we got enough for everybody. His death and his resurrection handles it for everybody. And so Jesus is shown in Matthew's gospel crying out and telling the world, come to me. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is shown throughout the New Testament. Draw your eyes up here. Let me give you some samples. Again, this is theological context for what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 8. But first, context. Matthew 17, 30, we read, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. John three sixteen, I just quoted about, about how God has loved the world in His Son. To believe in Him, right? And have everlasting life. Paul writes that Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy 2, 6 gave Himself as a ransom for all. And, 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 and the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was for a little while made lower than angels so that by grace of God He may taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.9 And yet, and yet, and yet, not everyone comes to Him. I've got enough food on the table for everybody to come and eat. But not everyone comes. Not everyone believes. Now, for starters, it's a miracle that anyone comes because we keep in mind the rebellion. We keep in mind that it's more than a rebellion. It's, it's depravity. And in our depravity against our Creator, we're, we're actually said to be, in Scripture, dead in our sins. The Bible explains that our rebellion is, is like a death. We're spiritually dead. And here's the thing about dead people. Dead people don't believe stuff. Dead people don't do stuff. They're dead. A weekend at Bernie's, I mean, you can attach some strings to them and you're right, pull it off or whatever, but uh, I'm dating myself. There's probably a bunch of people in here who haven't seen it. Google it. Weekend at Bernie's. They take a dead guy and they make him look like he's alive. Dead people don't do things is the point. They're dead. And so if we're spiritually dead, it stands to reason that we aren't going to believe stuff. We're not going to repent stuff. We're dead. Listen, if you're here today and you love Jesus, it is not because you were so spiritual that you decided, I'm going to love Jesus back. You know, I, I, I love Him and I made that decision for myself. I, I, I heard the message and then I said a little Jesus prayer and then because I said the prayer, God saved me. On the contrary, it was because of His grace. It was because of His grace that you said that prayer. In John 14, 19, it says, We love because He first loved us. And so while God so loved the world, there is something specific, something that is efficacious in His love for us. It, it is sufficient for all, but it is actually only efficacious for those who have come to the table to feast. His love is efficacious. His love is productive. It is important for us to see this by way of theological context. So in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to see people coming to Him, and you see people not coming to Him, and you say, well, why are some coming and others not? Because it is a matter of His efficacious work. We weren't smart enough to believe the gospel. We weren't spiritual enough to believe the gospel. And so, so God then rewarded us. 
We, we, don't, we can't look condescendingly on people who don't believe what we believe because we don't believe what we believe because we made ourselves believe it. We weren't smart enough, spiritual enough, simple enough, or, or whatever, however you want to frame it. Whether it is a passing, receiving, or an active believing, both pose salvation as something that you earned, and we categorically say salvation is not something you earn. It is, by definition, a gift. Draw your eyes up here, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. What does it say? For, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Let's read this together. Crowd participation. I'm feeling lonely up here. One, two, three. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's a humbling thing. It's not from you. It's, it's from an efficient power in God. And so, so while His work of salvation is sufficient for all, we understand it is only efficacious for those who He has called to come. Who can come to Jesus? Well, His sufficiency, all can, but who will come? Speaking of His efficiency, only those who He calls and beckons. Because it is not a work of man that man may boast. You see, sufficient... Right? Sufficient means we got enough here. But efficient means it's actually working. Efficient means it's producing something. It's doing something. In other words, when Jesus was dying on the cross, was he just making a big sandwich that everyone gets a slice out of? Or was he actually doing something, accomplishing something, working something? Was, was that redemption particular? Was it doing something? And I submit to you it was. Jesus, as he hung on the cross of Calvary, was actually efficiently saving his people. And these are, are, are specifically the, the kinds of things that we see on his lips that helps us to have theological context for making sense of the passage we'll be in in Matthew 8. Jesus was and is aware of a group of people who the Father had called to him. Draw your eyes up here and look at John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All of them. And, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. Jesus also says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom have been given to me, for they are yours. And then he goes on from this specific reference uh, of the disciples to say this. Look at John 17, 20. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's you and I. As we... Listen to the word of Matthew, who was called by the Father to Jesus, who efficiently, efficiently saves him. And now we listen to Matthew and we hear from him, of him, God continues to efficiently call what he has sufficiently supplied. Jesus goes on from this specific reference to, to those disciples and, and he's raising this question in these gospel accounts, who will come to me? And the answer is those given by God as they encounter the Word of God. You see the efficiency. You see the power. God really is a Savior. He's really saving people. He's not just making salvation possible and saying, here, I put it out there. If you want some, you know, have some. If not, I'll just, you know, I'll just put it in the fridge and heat up leftovers for whoever shows up for it. No, no, he's, he's not just supplying. He's actually saving. It's not a matter of you cooperating with grace in order to be saved. Rather, it is the God who gives grace. He calls you and he saves you. The Holy Spirit comes to a man who is dead and brings him life as the gospel is heard. The soul is renewed by God's power. 
The Spirit opens the heart through regeneration. The regenerated person can and will believe the Gospel. They cannot resist. His love is that compelling. His power is that, that overwhelming. Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes as you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3.8 When we examine the words of our Lord in John 3, there can be no doubt that He has taught that God the Holy Spirit is the origin and the source and the author of regeneration. In our, 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 in our service before this for our Welcome Home course, this is what we were talking about this morning, the regenerating work of the Spirit. The first believer, going back historically, the first Christian in Europe, do you know who the first Christian in Europe was? Uh, and I, I pause to emphasize this because a lot of times people will say Christianity is a European white man's religion. You know, Christianity uh, began in the Middle East and uh, it fled into Africa and Asia. It was in China before it was in Ireland. It's an Asiatic, African, Middle Eastern religion. Don't get it twisted. Uh, the first state churches were actually in Africa and not in Europe. Uh, check your history. But anyway, back to the point at hand. The first convert in Europe. Uh, Bible trivia. Anyone know? I see a hand back there. I want to take a stab at it. The Ethiopian eunuch is African. The first European uh, convert was Lydia. Acts chapter 16. Let me show you this. Let, let, let's see how, 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 uh, how, how, how God grabs a hold of her. Now John, in noting the Ethiopian eunuch, again to the point that I was saying, the, the gospel spread into Africa and Asia before it spread into Europe historically. And so, so those of European descent are in debt to that. But draw your eyes up here in Acts 16, 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira was listening. And she decided that based on her spirituality, she would come to him. No. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Who saved her? Who did it? The Lord did. Paul, Paul, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In salvation, the unwilling are made willing. In salvation, the undesiring are made desiring. And so in salvation, God receives all the glory, right? Because he did it all. Understand that Christ paid everything. And that the Spirit opened your eyes to see this, giving you salvation. And then, and then, and then, God just keeps going on and on and on to the break of dawn in our discipleship as he walks with us and keeps pouring his grace on us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, we read that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Who can come to Jesus? We understand his sufficiency. All can come. Who will come to Jesus? Not all will come. And those who come, it is because of his efficient work, so he gets the props. Shout out, shout out to the triune God for saving us. Who will come? Who can come? Who will follow? Thirdly, on your outline, now we move from sufficiency, efficiency, to discipleship. And now this brings us into Matthew chapter 8. Because again, look at how the chapter begins here. We see a large crowd in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. And we're going to see in Matthew 8 people coming to him and people not coming to him. And, and, and notice how it, it actually begins in, in, in verse 2. Notice this. There's a leper who comes to him and bows down to him. The lepers are outcasts. They're the marginalized. They're like, get out of here. Ugh, ugh, leper. Ugh. Now look at verse 5. In verse 5, we have a Gentile. We have a centurion who's, who's, a, who's a member of the, of the oppressor group, the Romans who oppress 
the Jewish people, like these are, ugh, ugh, these are the, these are hateful, oppressive, racist people who take your money and just have their boot on your back. And he cries out to Jesus and calls Jesus Lord. And comes to Jesus for a healing for his servant, and Jesus supplies. The chapter begins kind of with this question of like, who can come to Jesus in the crowds that are there? All of them can come. All of them can come. All, there's, there's enough food for everybody. All of them can come. But who will come? Lepers and oppressors, outcasts, marginalized, the deviants, the derelicts, the ones that you don't want nothing to do with. Meanwhile, we're going to see among his own community the, the hard-working, kind of loyal, you know, people that you would expect to would come, don't come. And this is a part of God reminding us that salvation is His work. Uh, we're, we're told in Scripture that He takes the foolish of the world to shame the wise. He takes the weak to shame the, the strong. He, he saves the unlikely because that drives home the point, those people don't come to God. So clearly, they have come to God because God called them to Himself. Draw your eyes at verse 10 in the text. We read in verse 10, this is Jesus, and he's, he's marveling in his mind. Verse 10 says, And he says to those who are following after him, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. The, the Gentiles have more faith than the spiritual people of Israel? Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That meal that has been prepared? You're telling me that, that there's going to be Gentile, dirty Gentiles there? And, 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 and that there's going to be people coming from the east and the west, foreign nations who are going to come to, the, to that table? Is, what? What? Verse 12, But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, this is hell talk, and I know it's not popular to talk about the H-E double hockey stick. You know, people don't like that. People are scandalized. Oh, you're talking about hell. That's so old-fashioned. But the fact of the matter is, when we wrap ourselves around the good news of the gospel and the bad news of our sin, we realize that we actually shouldn't be scandalized by hell. Hell is what we deserve. Those guys who killed John Wick's dog, they deserve to get the pap pap. You know, like, you, we, again, we watch these movies. They're like, get them, get them. That's what you deserve. We deserve punishment. The real scandal is heaven, that any of us, that any of us would go to heaven. That's a scandal. That's not fair. That is not fair. But notice that Jesus presses into him. He doesn't mince his words. This moves to the next point on your outline. Jesus means business. We started with Jesus and membership in the body. Who can come? Who will come? Who will follow? And now we see as Jesus presses into that, he, he don't play. He don't play. He's not messing around. Now, notice the context here, verse 5 in chapter 8, he's in Capernaum. Capernaum is his old stomping grounds. Uh, here's a, a picture of, one of, my, of, of myself in Capernaum. I love being in Capernaum. Capernaum is popping. It's a fun place to be. And it was all the more popping in Jesus' day. It, it is a, a place where the crowds are. It is a place where the paparazzi are. It's the TMZ. You know, TMZ's following after you, waiting, waiting to post a little something on TikTok and make you look dumb. Jesus is there, and he is uh, there, a calling by his efficient work uh, through the Father, by the Spirit, people to himself. He, he wants their hearts. He doesn't want hype. He doesn't want hoopla. 
And we're going to see that Jesus gets at the heart by actually uh, showing that he's not messing around and he uses hard words. And his hard words actually soften our hearts. He's not being a jerk. He's doing this because he loves us. And speaking of his love, moving on your outline there, A, under Jesus means business, Jesus indwelling, we see Jesus moving with a heart of compassion for those who are following him. Draw your eyes at verse 14. Jesus comes to Peter's home. That is his dwelling. Uh, Jesus saw his mother-in-law lying sick in a bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and, and, and waited on him. Uh, th- he didn't slide her an Advil. This is a miracle here, right? This, is, this miracle is also recorded in Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. You can read about it in Mark 1, 29-31, and Luke 4, 38-41. It's a very important scene, which is why the Synoptic Gospels all record it. Here we see Jesus in the dwelling of a disciple, in the home. He cares about Peter. He cares about his family. Uh, I, I, I think sometimes we, we, we forget this, like, oh, it's just master, disciple, apprenticeship, or whatever. No, this is real life. Real life, real faith, real Jesus, real people. That's his, you know, his mother-in-law. Insert mother-in-law joke, not going to do it. He goes into the home. He's in the home. He, he, he's there. You see, discipleship with Jesus was not just a class you attend. It was not just a book that you read. It was real life. And so he's, he's in the dwelling. He's in the home. And here we see a compassion for the sick in verse 14. This verse sort of interrupts the narrative. You know, it's like there's all this stuff going on and then, and then it, you just you go straight to the home. It, 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 it is a pit stop of sorts. Jesus is steady mobbing. His ministry is underway. He's pushing into the city. But he still has time for people in real life. He cares about his disciples. You read his prayer in John 17 and you see his love for the disciples. He comes to the home of Peter and it says that his mother-in-law is sick. Perhaps his wife was tending her because of this illness and Jesus wants to put a stop on all that. And so he heals her and just look at her response. This is more than mere motherly hospitality. This, This is the efficient work of God in her life. Verse 15 then speaks of her waiting on Jesus. She got up and waited on him. In the Greek, it is this word diakoneo, which is where we get our word deacon. Uh, To deke is to serve, diakoneo. It is a word that gets used around the time in religious contexts. Uh, New Testament scholar Dr. Craig Keener notes how this verse and its structure may make emphatic the model for discipleship. After Jesus transforms a person, the person serves him. Through the gospel narrative, this kind of response is shown to indicate a recognition of Jesus' identity and his claims. It is interesting to observe in the immediate narrative, specifically here in the 8th chapter, we see the leper coming to Jesus, the centurion coming to Jesus, and that efficient power in them, they're they're down to serve. Something in them has changed. This This is not just a miracle of a fever breaking, this is a miracle of a heart being transformed. And it's not make-believe. This really happened. This is a real location in history and in time. It is worth noting that archaeologists in 1968 found the location of this home. I'll show you a picture of it. It's actually, this home It actually isn't too far from, isn't too far from uh, a synagogue. There, here's, the, here's, the, here's the home, and you have the ruins of an ancient synagogue. Look at this aerial shot. I'm on location here at this place. As I said, I love hanging out here. You, you, you can walk through the city. You see the remains of these homes. Uh, the, these homes were originally one story with walls of black balsit stones. The original roof was made from beams and branches that covered the earth in the straw. 
pottery shards, oil, coins. We have all sorts of data that archaeologists have unearthed from this time. There is ancient graffiti in this area from the time of Jesus that calls Jesus Lord and Christ in Greek. Graffiti. Uh, youth group, that doesn't mean you could go tag Jesus is Lord all over the freeway, right? We have pieces of evidence that indicate that during this, this, this time, uh, there was actually a, 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 an incredible revival that happened. And get this, it happened around Peter's dwelling. Uh, it happened around Peter's dwelling. The house church continued actually historically, in existence. These are, the remains, these are the remains of it. Continued in existence for hundreds of years as a hub of revival. Uh, I, I mentioned that there's graffiti. We, we also have over 100 Greek, Aramaic, Syriac, Latin, and, and Hebrew artifacts from, from this place, located in the sands of time. In the 5th century, there was an, oct, an, an octagonal church that was constructed on top of the remains. So here you see the remains. And then on top of this, you see this octagonal structure that was built, and it rests on the site today. And we still have people worshiping in this structure on top of this house today. Jesus is Lord. He has come. This is real history. There's real archaeological confirmation of this. This is not a legend that, that, that came later. This is the real deal. And the people and the locals, they're writing about it, and they're letting us know, like, this happened. We move from Jesus in the dwelling to Jesus in the darkness, next on your outline. Move from the archaeology of this incredible site, a place of worship as it was back then and still to this day. Draw your eyes back into the text of the 8th chapter of Matthew, verse 16. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. Jesus is punking the darkness. He's absolutely punking the darkness. Jesus, don't play that. There's not a struggle at all. Jesus, don't play that. Now, I say that, and it makes me think of a 90s character from In Living Color, Homie D. Clown, if some of you remember. It was played by Damon Wayans. Uh, the character was an ex-con who works as a clown as a part of his parole agreement. And so he's got to go to these parties with kids, and he's, hey, boys and girls, you know, and then, like, the kids start acting out, you know, and, uh, and, and he snaps in each, each skit, and it's really funny. And then he comes with the punchline, I don't think so, homie, don't play that. And then he starts, you know, beating on the kids or whatever, right? Like, he's not messing around, you know, like, I told you to sit down, you didn't sit down, homie, don't play that. Jesus isn't messing around. He goes straight for the darkness, and he just starts punking it. When you look at Luke's account in Luke chapter 4, uh, and I'll put it in front of you so you can keep open here in Matthew. Look at, look at, look at Luke chapter 4, and in Luke's account, you're going to see something. I'll put it up in a second, but again, let me remind you. You've got, this is the octagonal structure that is built on top of, where, of Peter's house, and over here you have the synagogue. See how close they are, okay? And now we read in verse 16 about demon-possessed people coming over, coming down the street right over to the house. Now let me put Luke 4 in front of you. When he came down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, they were amazed at his teaching. In the synagogues there was a man possessed by a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do you have, Jesus of Nazareth? You've come to destroy us. I know who you are. You are the Holy One. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. The demon threw down in the midst of the people, and he got up and left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's home. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering. 
He rebuked her fever. It left her. She immediately got up and waited on him. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick, various diseases, demons, they're all coming, and they're shouting, you are the Son of God. So you can imagine, it's like, I mean, like this church is right here, and say like just a house down the way or whatever, right? And Jesus is down at the house, right? And the synagogue, the worship center in the city there, is actually filled with demons, and, and Jesus starts punking the demons. Again, verse 16. When evening came, he's casting out these spirits. He's just, he's punking them. Jesus don't play. It's not even a power struggle. It, he doesn't play. It is interesting in what Luke has written in this passage, because in Luke's passage, we, we, we saw that the demons were shouting, you are the son of God. And what's interesting about that is demons understand who he is, and yet the crowds... Verse 1, chapter 8, the large crowds don't. Who can come to him is sufficient for all. Who will come for him? Only to those whom he elects to make it efficient. Even the demons get this. Even the lepers get this. Even the centurions get this. It's reminding us that we're dead in our sin and it's going to take someone to open up our eyes and give us a new heart to see this. Uh, Matthew is emphasizing the crowds. He's emphasizing in the text... All of these crowds. Look at this. Matthew 4, 25, 5, 1, 8, 1. The crowds. And who's going to come out of the crowds? Matthew draws here the irony that the masses are not getting it. But the marginalized are. And even the demons are. Look, demons are believers. But they're not saved. They're not saved. And so too among uh, uh, many in church today, they'll say, I believe in Jesus. The question isn't whether or not you believe in Jesus. The question is whether or not you've repented of your sin and have come in saving faith to Him by His power. Luke 4 has the demons crying out, you're the Son of God, you're the Christ. You you see, Jesus is no bootlegger exorcist. He's not a clairvoyant. He's not a card reader. He's he's not doing, uh, you you know, your, your, uh, your astrological sign. He's not a word faith wannabe healer. He's the real deal because he is the real deal. And to show you this, look at verse 17 in Matthew 8. Matthew ties it to prophecy. This was to fulfill, verse 17, what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. We see here prophecy is delivered. Punking demons, prophecy delivered. Verse 17 is a reference to Isaiah 53, specifically 53.4, in which there is the prophetic language of healing from the ravages of sin. And for the ancients, they tied this to disease and darkness and depravity. They understood the fall. They understood the rebellion. They understood the bad news. In Genesis 3, with the bad news of the fall of humanity, you see the devil. And so tied to his saving work, you just see him dropping the beat down on the devil in this text. And the tying it in of prophecy is showing you, look, like this is a God thing. This isn't uh, some make-believe stuff. So we see Jesus in the dwelling, Jesus in the darkness. See on your outline, we see Jesus' demands. Look at the text, verse 18, where we left off. Now Jesus saw a crowd around him, and he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and he said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds have, have, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, permit me to, be, to, to, to go and to bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury the, their own dead. Jesus don't play. Jesus exposes... And the text here, his demands, he exposes the empty promises of the scribes. 
the scribes, the grammatus, as they were known. They were trained scholars who were, who were known for their, their, their knowledge in Scripture. They were, they were spiritual. Um, they, they, they lived their lives copying Scripture for people, sort of the ancient kinkos. I'm dating myself. Do we even have kinkos anymore? Where do you go and get copies? Uh, if you wanted something copied, you had to go to the grammatus. You had to go to the scribes. That's their trade. And, and they were the ones who were recognized in the spiritual community to be able to do this. So the scribe says, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you, go, wherever you go. And Jesus knows that's an empty promise. You're trying to look good in front of people. Right? You know, you're posting that on, on Facebook or social media or whatever. But I can, I can see right through it, Jesus says. Man, you don't, you don't even know what you're talking about, Jesus says. You don't even know what you're talking about. The scribes were uh, affluent. They were used to wealth and comfort. And so Jesus says, bruh, I'm, I'm homeless. <laughs> no cap, nowhere to lay my head. Birds have nests. Foxes have foxholes. I don't even have those. Are you ready for this? Is it, you, you really, are you really ready for this? I'm not, I'm not messing around. I'm not playing games here, right? They were followers of a kind of prosperity gospel. And times haven't changed. We still see that today. You know, some of the largest churches are led by figures like Joel Osteen that are promising you what? Your best life now. I submit to you the best is yet to come. And if you read Jesus, you don't read Him inviting you into your best life now. You, you, you read Him inviting you into something that is drastically different. I saw this meme this week. God wants you to live your best life now. And Jesus says, you will be hated by all men for my name's sake, but those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, Joel is easy to pick on. Uh, he is. Um, and, and other uh, you know, popular preachers in the culture are easy to pick on. But we gather as Christ people, and we need to examine ourselves, in our churches too. People today talk about believing in Jesus and following after Jesus, but they still want a nest in a foxhole. People are unwilling to sacrifice for the mission of the gospel. I, I mean, good God-fearing Christians. They want comfort and that is why the modern world and, and many churches are, 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 are losing their grip in the modern world, uh, particularly in urban centers. Cities are hard to live in. Cities are expensive. A place like Los Angeles is a very hard place to be on mission for Jesus. And we got demons everywhere. we got darkness everywhere. Why stay and fight and serve the mission of the gospel when you can leave and go somewhere where it will be easy? Uh, so, so, so we tell ourselves, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you will go. And by that we mean like suburbia and like somewhere like that's really nice and not a hard place. The church is filled with scribes who think they're on mission, but their comforts betray them. Their checkbooks betray them. They, they, they live for their toys and their comforts. They live for their jobs, their scribing and not for mission. Times have not changed. Uh, people are not sacrificing in Christ's church for the mission that He has given to us. And we wonder why folks are spiritually dry and churches are dying. I could drive through our city here in Los Angeles and see apartment buildings where churches used to stand. Uh, meanwhile, I, I, I see believers who will hit the streets for social causes and not for the gospel. They know more about politics than Scripture. They can recite the names of the justices of the Supreme Court, but they would struggle to tell you the names of the twelve disciples let alone the minor prophets of the Hebrew Bible. They consume the news and it gets them going. It gets their emotions going. The news gets them going. But the good news barely gets their emotions going, if even their attention. 
I can share you Facebook pictures of people who sacrifice for this or that and examples of, of people in the church who get all riled up about this or that, but it is things other than the mission that was given to us and things that are centered outside of Christ's church. Jesus is coming back to get His church. Jesus is saving sinners and bringing them into His church. Our Lord's bride is treated like a hobby in our culture, something we check off on Sunday. Our Lord is treated with lip service like the scribe, and we often fail to self-examine in this regard. Again, it's easy to pick on old Joel, but what about ourselves? May He grant us repentance and faith. Now that said, I am very thankful in my life. I'm very thankful in my church by the things that I see in our congregation. I see people active in this church reaching out to people. I was very encouraged this week. If you follow us on, in our private uh, uh, church page on Delray Church, uh, Landon over here uh, posted, I'm going down to LMU to you know, share the gospel with students. Anybody want to come with me? How cool is that? How cool is that? I'm going I'm to go down the street to the college down here and talk to people about Jesus. Others of you posting prayer requests. I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with my friend. I got this co-worker who's, who's, who's lost and hurting or whatever. Pray for me as I witness to them. And then, and then sh- seeing them show up here and seeing God work through you on mission, making sacrifices because you could spend your time in other ways. Let us mobilize one another. Let us, let us fan to flame this kind of anti-scribal heart that comes to Jesus with empty lip service. Second on your outline there, you see entry postponed for the superficial. Empty promises of the scribes and then entry postponed for the superficial. Verse 21, the other disciple comes and says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Now, what's going on here? I've got to move fast because we're out of time as usual. But in the ancient culture, a son is responsible for his parents. You're supposed to honor your parents. In death, you want to honor your parents. A son is responsible for handling the burial uh, details. In that culture, there were two burials, okay? And it's not clear in the text which one is in mind here. The first burial happens immediately when you die. When you die, there's a body, and if you leave the body out, it, it's gonna, it's gonna, it, gross stuff is going to happen, and, and it's going to spread in the air and the ground, and people are going to get sick. So we've got to bury that body. We've got to put it in a tomb, and, and that's the first burial. Now, second burial in their culture, you would come back a year later after everything had decayed. I know it's a little gross, uh, but in their culture, you would then take the bones and you would put them into a bone casket known as an ossuary. And those ossuaries, to this day in the city of Jerusalem, those ossuaries are stacked all around the holy city. Because in Jewish eschatology, when the Messiah comes, he's going to raise the dead and everyone wants a front row seat. So, uh, so we stack the bones in these little ossuaries, you write the names on the side, and there's a whole bunch of ossuaries all around there. It's, it's kind of cool. Anyway, so is he saying uh, the first burial? You know, because it's like, well, he, that's got to happen in 24 hours, bro. Like, like come on, uh, what, what, are you, what are you doing? Or is he saying, I'm waiting for the year thing, you know, and then I can start following you a- after a year? Uh, or, or maybe even like he's just waiting for his dad to die. His dad hasn't died yet. We're not entirely sure of the case, but what, what we are sure of is that Jesus sees right through it. And he makes a, a pun here because he says, let the dead bury the dead. Let the spiritually dead handle the burial of the physical death because I'm inviting you to be a part of the spiritually alive community who has a mission to go and bring life to the dead. Now, 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 now again, this teases out the the context that I laid in the beginning of who can come 
This guy can come. He's being invited to come. And who will come? It's sufficient for all, but efficient for those who come, so that God gets the glory in those who are coming, because he's the one who's doing it. Now, as Jesus invites them and saves them, he is then training them in discipleship, which leads us to the conclusion. We've seen Jesus and membership in the body. Jesus means business. And the final point here, Jesus and my battles. Now, think of the chapter uh, from the mountain of Capernaum to dirty lepers who come to Jesus to the, the, the shady Gentile. Uh, you know, the outsiders, the outsiders are coming. It's clearly not them who are coming. It is Jesus who is drawing them. And then Jesus comes to Peter's house, his disciple, and, and he heals the mom. Uh, uh, and, and then all hell breaks loose. Demons start running down the street from the synagogue over to the house, and, and Jesus throws down because Jesus don't play that. The Gentiles know he's God. The darkness knows he's God. But uh, the people who he's inviting to come, they, they just don't see it. Matthew goes, this is Isaiah 53, you guys. They just don't see it. No amount of evidence will change their hearts, only an encounter with the Spirit. The whole scene shows Jesus in rejection, but that rejection doesn't stop him from saving and from being on the move. And furthermore, that rejection doesn't stop his disciples from seeing his heart for them uh, in terms of the home, in terms of engaging the darkness, and in terms of discipleship in the world. Those are the three final points. I love that Jesus is in the home of Peter's mom. You see a real friend who's concerned with a family. You see his compassion. You see his power. You see his love. While Jesus don't play, you know, he goes hard in the paint on, 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 on people, you also see his soft side. And you see his care for the family. You see, you see the scene of him caring for a mother of his disciple. It, it certainly shows that he wasn't being, uh, you know, uh, uh, mean with the, with the people even though he throws down. He cares about family. I mean, he's God the Son and God invented family. Of course he cares about the family. Family's not going to stop the mission. He goes and he heals her. Maybe Peter was worried about it, so he goes in there and he heals her, and he goes, we've got to keep on mashing. We've got to keep going. We see, his, we see his devotion in the home. We see his duty in the darkness. Jesus casting out demons. We live in a culture where demons run rampant. We live in a culture where demons are in your face. I mean, people aren't even, people aren't even trying to cover up nowadays. I can think of endless examples of it. We see the powers of demons in our culture, abuse, violence, death, self-righteousness, murder. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the final point, discipleship in the world. Matthew has been showing us Jesus' mission in the world. Uh, Matthew's gospel opens with the, the magi, the magi, the Gentile kings who come and worship him. Jesus invites fishermen who are lowly to come and follow him, and they do. Jesus uh, is saving lepers and centurions and sick moms and the weak and the lowly, the hurting, the stressful. Jesus worked hard. Jesus was, was all about bringing this message into the world. And so I think to ourselves, those who are in him, those who say, I believe in him, he is my Lord, that, that we carry this mission that has been given to us to go and to share the good news. And we spur one another on in these good works. Keep posting on Facebook. I'm going here to share the gospel. Who wants to come to me? I'm sharing the gospel with this person. Pray for me. Help me with this. And keep working together for this end as we carry this message and this mission. The table has been prepared. There's more than enough on the table. He has has given us sufficiently everything and He is inviting the world to come. 
we have before us this morning, we always respond to the preaching of God's Word in the coming to the communion table. We have a table before us that reminds us of this. He's prepared a feast for us. Our Passover lamb has come. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And He invites you to come. Come, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, come. Self-righteous, come and be set free. Lost, come and be found. The scribe came to Him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you everywhere you will go. But He didn't mean it. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's sad that they didn't listen to Jesus. They missed it. They missed, you know, that he had come to suffer, that he had come to die. They wanted to follow him because they were thinking about what they would get in return and these sorts of things, and they absolutely missed it. You're standing in the presence of God the Son in the flesh who's telling you who He is and what He has come to do. And instead of listening to Him, instead of listening even to someone who knew Him like Matthew and this Word that was written by the Holy Spirit Himself, instead of listening to that, people in this world will listen to anything and everything else. This week I read a quote by uh, Professor Dr. Thomas Sowell. He has this line where he says, It is hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than putting those decisions into the hands of the people who pay no price for being wrong. And it made me think about, you know, Christ and, 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 the, and, and the call, the invitation. Come to me. Come to me. And he pays the price for it. He pays the price for this. And guess what? He's not wrong about it. He's really God the Son. He really came for you. He really died in your place. And if you turn and you come to Him, you'll really be saved. And so I close this message with an invitation for you to come. With a reminder that Jesus don't play. With an invitation not only to come and to be saved by Him, but an invitation to join His church and to go on mission as we carry this message to the ends of the earth. And let us remember that missions exist because worship doesn't. So let us respond to the word in worship as we come to the communion table, as we sing to him, as we sing to the one who doesn't play and give thanks that he rescued us from what we had coming. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Matthew, and the work of your spirit in giving us the eighth chapter of the gospel of Matthew. Seeing Jesus in the home and in the darkness and in the streets seeing your spirit drawing people to him, seeing your irresistible grace just pulling people in and changing their hearts and transforming them. Lord, we're so thankful for that. Left to our own devices, we would never come. Left to our own devices, we would think this whole gospel thing is silly. We would be, we, we would be stuck being offended that we're, that we're sinners and there's a place called hell and and yet, Lord, you changed our hearts. And what we otherwise would have thought was dumb or offensive or, or, or exclusive or narrow-minded, we actually see as love. And we call it good news. We thank you for your good news. As we come to the table, we thank you for the symbol of your good news in the table. And we pray that, Lord, as we come to the table, and we're reminded of the Son, Lord, that you would sanctify us and work through us. Receive these songs of worship, receive our offerings, move through our time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.